the most wonderful time of the year, the hap, hap, happiest season of all. Not always. Not always. Um, sometimes you can be a child laying in bed at night and re- coming to that stark, cold, sobering realization, you're not going to get that toy that you've had your eye on um, for quite some time. It can be uh, rather not the child thinking of themselves, but it could be the parent thinking of the child. You're not going to be able to give that child that particular thing that you know that they've got their heart on. because Maybe because of simple accessibility, or maybe it's simply because of lack of affordability. It's not always the most wonderful time of the year, the hap-hap heaviest season of all, in that case, is it? And maybe it's not just because of the material stuff and the longing and ache that we feel in the lack uh, there. It could be that this time of the year you start to reflect on the year gone by and you come to a sobering realization that nothing has changed. Or too much has changed. And again, it's not so happy. And it's not so wondrous. And so that when that happens, when thoughts like that and cold realities like that seize hold of our hearts, what then do we do? Where then should we turn? To the Christ of Christmas. To the one who is the focus of this Advent celebration. I'm not knocking the parties. I'm not knocking the TV specials and the holiday movies and jingle bells and everything else or Christmas ties. But I will say that will not sustain. That will never sustain. That is trappings. It is fluff. It is extra. It's it's a bonus. It's meringue on the pie. We need the Christ of Christmas. We're engaging in a series this Advent season uh, where we're going to be looking at the way the Lord, in His grace over the course of centuries, prepared the way for the coming of the Christ of Christmas and how Jesus is revealed to us in the Old Testament. And we're going to start this morning at the very beginning. Genesis. So I hope I don't have to tell you where to find that. But if you do need to know, it's the first book of the Bible. The first book of the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be honing in on what uh, theologians for years have referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, meaning the first gospel proclamation. Genesis 3.15. That's where we're just going to keep pounding and pounding and pounding on that verse. But to set the stage, we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 3, Genesis 3, verse 1, and then going on through verse 15. So if you have a Bible with you, I ask you to go there with me now. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, going on down to verse 15. Hear now the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray together. Lord, surely this season of year certainly does spin up a lot for us. Uh, anticipation and regret. Uh, hope and pain. Um, time of gatherings and struggles of loneliness. Many memories, some good, and some not so much. So it really is a profound fakery to just talk celebration, to just talk party and festivities without going to the root without going to the purpose, lest all of this be empty and a facade. It need not be. We as believers have more reason to celebrate than any human on this planet because we know. We know what it's about. We know what it's for. But, oh Lord, we need reminding just as much as anybody else. Pray for myself and I pray for all these folks in this room. Would you take us by the hand and take us back to the garden. Take us back to that promise. Help us understand and help us lay hold of it. We pray in your name. Amen. This holiday season, show her how special she is. That's a brilliant ad campaign. And not just because of jewelers and their desire to get you to spend a, a lot of money, but because it taps into a profound truism that uh, private promises of a commitment are simply not enough. Uh, cheap declarations of devotion simply aren't going to cut it. 
the man simply just does need to have a plan. He needs to have a plan. He needs to woo this woman. He needs to convince her. He needs to declare to her. He needs to demonstrate to her. In fact, she needs him. It's a wooing. It's a wooing that needs to take place here. And it takes us back. I think there's something of the reason why that picture captures something of our imagination and almost like a deep memory because that's exactly what God is to us. The best suitor, the most profound wooer there ever has been and ever could be. The Scriptures themselves is an unfolding proposal It's a progressive revelation of the love of God to the people of God. That's what you see here. Genesis to to Revelation, and so much so that by the time you get to the little town of Bethlehem, Jesus' arrival there, we'll call it the first Christmas, the way has been well prepared. It's all been done. The scene has, has been set. God is, oh, such a wise, wise suitor. And you see it at the very very, very beginning. Here, Genesis 3. Genesis 3 helps us to understand how we got into the mess that we did and are still in. It helps us to understand how it is that we got from this perfect, ideal, fantastic, beyond our imaginations grasping of paradise in Genesis 2. It helps us understand how we got to that to the aching brokenness and emptiness and bentness and crookedness in which all of creation now lays. It tells us that. It's the, it's the explanation of that. But it's not just that. It's a declaration. It's not just an explanation. It's a declaration. A declaration of a promise. A promise that God makes at the very start where he says, I'm going to fix this mess. I'm going to fix this mess that this whole creation, that all mankind is now in by the sending of the descendant of Eve. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to rescue you through the sending of a descendant of Eve. And that's exactly what he's done. It's exactly what he's done. And as we see that, as we grapple with that, as we lay hold of that reality, and it's such a simple thing to say. And the points I have, and you can see there in the outline, are so kind of like, yeah, duh. It's just sort of, but I mean, you let them settle into your bones, and it'll change you from the inside out to the degree we will hear this and grapple with the simple realities of what we see here in Genesis 3.15 this proto-evangelium, this first proclamation of the gospel that God is sending a descendant of Eve and we have every reason to therein take heart. Every reason to take heart. And I'm breaking it down in just two simple points. One, we see that as simply in grappling with, with what God has promised to do. That's the first thing. And the second thing in how he's promised to do it. What he's promised to do and how he's promising to do it. So let's look at this. What is he going to do? What is he promising to do? Again, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what he is promising to do. 
It is a declaration of war. Nothing less. It is a declaration of war. Enmity is being created. Now, by that, we, we understand it to mean hostility, hatred. A war is, is on. A curse has been pronounced upon Satan, and that curse is our comfort. Understand? That curse is our comfort. In order for peace to come, a war had to be declared. Why? Because mankind had treacherously and foolishly made an alliance with the enemy and his lies. So the only way for peace to come is for a war to be declared, enmity to be created. Let me try and illustrate this. Imagine a young teenage girl in a relationship with an older man and his intentions towards her are far less than honorable. What does she need? She needs someone from the outside coming in because she's entrapped with all of his deceit and all of his manipulative ways. She needs someone from the outside to come in and pull them apart. That's exactly what we see here. A separation, an enmity, a war being declared. And we're not, by the way, left to guess what the outcome will be. Because it's not just the declaration of war, it's also a clear determination stated here of who's going to win of a victory that is coming. Now, yes, it will, it will entail a relentless struggle that will unfold over the course of centuries. Two lines are created here. The seed of one and the seed of the other. And you see it immediately, Genesis 4 and following. You have Cain and you have Abel. And you just keep progressing, keep going, keep going. You have Pharaoh and you have the nation of Israel. You keep going, you keep going. You get to, say, the, the, uh, the, the birth narratives. You have Herod and the slaughter of those young boys in Bethlehem. Why? Because who is he after? The real king. Fast forward just a few years past that. You have the Jewish authorities working with the Roman authorities. And through that we have a betrayal and a trial and a crucifixion. Why? It's this, these lines developing. This enmity, this war that has been declared. But the outcome is assured. Again, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You have two different kinds of bruising, and you have to think in terms of what each really means. The, the, you have the bruising of the head of the enemy, really a crushing, a crushing of, Paul tells us that in Romans 16, a crushing of the head of the enemy, of Satan, of a fatal blow, a permanent fatal blow that will eventually in time be inflicted upon him with the enemy. But then we have the hero, the champion, the one being promised, who also will be bruised, not the head, but the heel. And with that is, I can put it this way, a temporary fatal blow. Fatal, but not final. 
And that becomes clear as things progress. How could that be? How could that be? Friends, we have every reason to take heart. Every reason to take heart, simply because of what God is going to do in this demonstration of his sovereign power and might. What he is promising to do. We live in a cosmic war zone. We live in a cosmic war zone. And there's at least two implications there. First, the need to choose your side. The need to choose your side. And secondly, the need to face your wounds and recognize that our wounds, our hurts, our pain can only be healed in His. Can only be healed in His. So I, I don't know where you are here this morning. I don't know what hopes of yours have been dashed. Or in what ways your trust has been betrayed. Or in what ways your plans have been unmet. Or what struggles, even this morning, rage within you. I don't know. But I do know this. The descendant of Eve and his wounds are enough. This Advent season, listen to the carols. The rich ones, the deep ones, the carols. Not the, you understand the difference? The songs and the carols. Listen to the depth and the significance, some of which we've already sung. And the hope that is promised, the reality that is conveyed. The descendant of Eve, God has promised to send a descendant of Eve. And he has. And he has. We have every reason to take heart. Simply in what he has promised to do, and now the follow-up, the second point, how he is promised to, to do it. And in this, again, we see not just a, a promise and a realization of his sovereign power and might, but his sovereign grace and mercy. Because it's not just the fact of what he's going to do, it's the means of how he's going to bring it to pass. How is he going to bring it to pass? Through whom? Through Eve. Did you catch that? We just beat up on Eve too much here. What is God saying from the start? The human instrumentality by which this is going to happen. Through Eve. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Now this word offspring is um, a little nebulous, a little vague. Uh, it seems to be two different references at the same time. On the one hand, a reference to a line of descendants. So an ongoing battle that I referred to already. But at the same time, there's a clear reference here to one individual in that line who is coming. That becomes very clear there in the second half of, of verse 15. That, that one who will do the bruising and yet at the same time be bruised in the process. There's one that is coming. And somehow, he will be two things at the same time. On the one hand, he'll be utterly different than us. Because he will have a, a, a mission, power, purpose, a work, 
unlike any other. At the same time, just as He is completely different, He is completely like us. He has to be. He's a descendant of Eve. So He's something more and somehow human. At the same time, you see the seed of that promise right here in Genesis 3.15 and the outworking of what we come to learn over the course of the centuries as this revelation unfolds. So you see this is certainly this, this Savior, this hero, this champion is clearly coming through Eve. But it's not just that. It becomes more astonishing because he comes despite Eve. Despite Eve. Despite what she'd done. He's going to come through her despite what she'd done. What has she done? She has listened to Satan. She has bought into his lies. And the only way she can do that is spurn the love, the trust, the affection lavished upon her and Adam. And she has given ear to the enemy and spurned the voice of her creator and provider and friend. What has she done? Despite what she's done, despite what she's shown, a profound distrust, a discontentment that is completely illogical, a weakness in the face of temptation, which therein opens up the floodgates to all kinds of bentness and crookedness and brokenness, just of her heart, to say nothing of this. So despite what she's done, despite what she's shown, and despite what she's brought, what has she brought? Now, chiefly speaking, Adam's the focal point of this. It's on him. It's on his fall that all the ruin of mankind and creation comes in. Okay, We need to be clear on that. That said, there's a human dynamic in play. Through whom did Adam's temptation come? Eve. Can you imagine the burden she feels? Like, say that day when she sees her son Abel lying dead on the ground and realizes how this happened. But this is the way God delights to work, despite us. Despite us. And we see the seed of it, the beginning of it, at the beginning. At his first opportunity to display this, he shows this. His sovereign power and might and his sovereign grace and mercy determined not just to rescue us, but to rescue us through us, despite us. Stories told of, of Thomas Edison. True story. Uh, this is back during the, the when he and his, his uh, lab mates were trying to, to get things going towards the creation of the first incandescent bulb. It would take them some 24 hours together as a team just to make one. Just as a trial. 
it probably wouldn't work. It was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that didn't work. So just it would take you 24 hours just to make one that would fail. And the story is told of one day, they, they're, they're finished with the labors. They've got another one. I think this might be the one. And Edison turns and hands it to this young errand boy and says, okay, I want you to take it up to the testing room upstairs. And the young lad takes the bulb, he turns, he trips, falls, and the bulb smashes on the ground. It's a day's work. Teams of people. Glass. All there on the floor. What does Edison do? He could have screamed. He could have yelled. He could have just you know, ranted. He could have raved. He didn't. It's all right. It's okay. Turns to the team. Make another one. Make another one. 24 hours later, they have another one. And in order to prove the sincerity of the forgiveness that he expressed towards that young boy the day before. You know what Edison does? Here you go. Here's the bulb. Now take it upstairs to the testing room. Do you understand that's the way the Lord works with you and me? Here you go. <laughs> Here you go. God loves us enough to restore us and he loves us enough to work through us at the same time, despite us. Despite all we are and despite all we're not. Despite all we've done and despite all we haven't. Despite us. Despite us. Friends, not a one of you, not a one of us, has been shunted off to the side, put in the back of the storage cabinet, the back of the line, or on the bench. Not a one of us, not a one of us is cast off and forgotten. Not a one. It's simply not the way he works. Now, I, I don't mean to trivialize the ways in which perhaps this morning, right now, you feel like, no, <laughs> if you only knew the way I've blown it, you wouldn't be saying this about me. Okay, let me just push you a little hard here. You haven't, by whatever it was you did, brought all of creation and mankind into sin and misery, necessitating the bringing of a Savior. I'm thinking I'm pretty safe on that bet. And if He in His majesty and power and might and mercy and grace is not just willing but rushing, towards Eve, to work not just in her, but through her, how much more so us? How much more so you and I, and our lesser failings and our lesser falls? He has sent, he's promised to send a descendant of Eve. He has. He has, just, he's in, just as he promised. Oh my goodness, we have such cause to take heart. Such cause to... It's no wonder, it's really no wonder, it's completely appropriate that this season should be filled with singing because we have so much, I think Amy, you said this earlier, we have so much to sing about and sing so fervently in the car, in the shower, in the hallway, in the kitchen, everywhere, everywhere. Isaac Watts, Isaac Watts, uh, as a young 18-year-old laddie, was complaining, made the mistake, made the mistake of complaining to his father one day of the hymns that uh, 
well, passed, the songs that passed as hymns in the day. And Isaac Watts' dad responded as dads often do. He said, hey, those hymns are good enough for your grandfather and your father, so they got to be good enough for you. And young Isaac said, they will never do for me, father, regardless of how grandfather and you felt about them. To which his father then said, well, if you don't like them, write your own. Well, father, I have written some. If you would just listen, I'd read one to you. And his father was so taken by this 18-year-old boy's skill, they sang it at church the next Sunday. And the congregation was so taken with that, they said, would you do that again? And that kept going on for 222 Sundays. And out of that comes a paraphrase of Psalm 98. That You, you may know this. You actually sang it a little while ago. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. One line. We sang it just a few minutes ago. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders, help me out, the wonders of his love. You sang it better earlier, but okay. That's what we need. That's what we need. We need the reminders again and again of the wonders, the sweet wonders of his love. God is the best suitor there could be. He's wooing you. He's wooing us right now. Right now in His Word. Will we hear? Will we hear the declaration of His love? That again, it's been there from the very beginning. The first opportunity He had to express it. He did. With a promise. A promise that He kept. We have but to lay hold of it. Let's pray. Oh God, from the very start, at the very first opportunity, at the first sign of our waywardness and our betrayal and our faithlessness and our rebelliousness and our discontented ways, you showed your ways. From the start and all the way since, you have shown yourself to be merciful and gracious and kind and compassionate, and patient, and persevering from the start and all the way since. Oh, would you help us to hear? Would you apply these realities to us? The sending of a descendant of, of Eve. Press it into the cracks where our hearts are broken. Press it into the, to the dust where our hearts are cynical. Press it into the mist where our thoughts are confused. Press it into the guilt where our burdens are just crushing. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. The descendant of Eve. Let us rejoice and be glad in Him. I pray in His name. Amen. I may ask my fellow elders to join me down front as we continue in this service in the celebration of the sacrament. This, of course, is a season of gathering.